Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's Arshi. So this season, we had Cory Doctorow on Commons to talk about how the music industry has been completely dominated by monopoly power, or what he says is the industrial aggregation of copyright. And there was a lot that Corey and I talked about that didn't make it into the episode, about monopolies, about the cultural industries, and about the ways that workers can and have pushed back against these parasitic arrangements. So we thought, why not just give you the whole damn thing? So here is my conversation with Cory Doctorow. So first off, I really love the book. I thought it was really interesting. And as a cultural worker myself, it made me appropriately angry. But before we get into the nitty gritty of some of the aspects of the music industry, I just kind of wanted to start with why you decided to write a book looking at the cultural industries and focusing on the plight of culture workers. Where did that impulse come from for you? So Rebecca and I are veterans of the copyright wars. We've, we've each spent a couple of decades fighting over what the appropriate kind of copyright is to have in the digital era. And, and we've observed that this is a extremely low quality debate in which you are broadly expected to sign up to, to defend either team user or team artist and their proxies, which are team tech and team entertainment company, and that neither of those teams are very good proxies for artists' interests. And you can see it because for 40 years, we've monotonically expanded copyright. It now lasts longer. It covers more kinds of works. The statutory damages are more harsh. The ease with which you can, you can get them has only increased. And indeed, the entertainment industry itself has gotten a lot larger and more profitable, either through the entertainment companies or through the tech companies that now have entertainment side businesses like YouTube. But the share of income going to artists has declined steadily over that whole period, both in real terms and proportionally. And so we wanted to write a book about how all workers are squeezed, but creative workers are in a double bind. Because on the one hand, this tool that we're given to try and balance out our otherwise wildly unbalanced negotiations for our wage, which is copyright, is very unsuited to highly concentrated markets. You know, if there's only like uh, five publishers and uh, four movie studios and three record labels and two giant ad tech platforms and, and one ebook and audiobook store, and it, it, it doesn't really matter how much copyright you have because they'll just make you sign it over to them. It's like giving your bullied kid extra lunch money. It's just not going to get them fed. You know, not even if the bullies are like, spending some of that lunch money on a campaign to feed the hungry children of Canada, still not going to, not going to solve anything. And, and so that's one part of the bind, right? That we have this tool that's supposed to fix what we're doing or, or fix the situation we're in. And it doesn't work in this specific kind of situation. And indeed it makes it worse, right? When, when uh, entertainment companies can acquire through these choke points, these huge portfolios of extremely long lived copyrights, they can then use them to structure the future of the industry so that it's impossible to break the choke point, so that they always get to take more and more of the creative labor that actually generates their riches as time goes by. And But the other piece of this is a piece that creative workers share with other kinds of workers, which is something sociologists call vocational awe, which is when you do your job because it means something to you. So we all know the joke about the kid who runs away and joins the circus and his dad finds him shov shoveling elephant shit and says, son, come home. And the kid says, what? And quit show business, right? But it's not just artists who have this vocational awe and are uniquely exploitable. You see this in all the caring professions, nursing, childcare, teaching, and so on. And you know this is why you're seeing these breaking points now, because anything that can't go on forever will eventually stop. And so for years employers of people in the caring trades have been saying to them, oh, go ahead and threaten to strike. We'll see who blinks first. You who care for these people and who knows that they're lying in their own filth while you walk the picket line or us, we, we get paid either way. And eventually it just gets to this point where if you're like a teacher on food stamps or a nurse who, who can't pay rent, you realize you can't take care of the people who are supposed to be in your care and you finally go out on strike. And so I think 
creative workers share a lot of common traits with other kinds of workers. The choke point marketplace that we're in, it's very similar, I think, to say Uber, where you have drivers on one side, riders on the other. And then a company in the middle that just like use billions of Saudi royal money to interpose itself between them so that they get a piece of it whenever anyone gets a ride from anywhere to anywhere else. And then you've also got all these other workers who are in the thrall of vocational awe and creative workers with this double bind. We're not the most important workers. We're not the most exploited workers, but we are in some ways the most uniquely exploitable workers because you can come at us from either one of these angles and what gets done to us gets done to everyone else eventually. And so we're a good harbinger and a, and a good bellwether for what's coming. And could you just talk to me a little bit about this concept of monopsony, which is a variant, obviously, like a form of monopoly power, but it's kind of central to your analysis of all this. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Well, we all know what monopoly is because we've all had, you know, innumerable family weekends ruined by a board game with that name. But nobody knows what monopsony is, although it's a pretty straightforward idea. If monopoly is where you have sellers that have control, monopsony is where you have buyers that have control. And I'll note just very briefly for the pedantic among us that while monopoly formally means one buyer, when we talk about it in the, or one seller, when we talk about it in the context of competition law and in competition analysis, what we mean is a, a firm that has market power. It's hard enough to say monopsony. Getting people to say oligopsony is really hard, and I'm not going to try. So let's just call them a monopsony. And monopsonies are like monopolies, right, where you have a firm that has excessive buyer power. It can crush the, the firms that it buys from. There's a labor economics term that's very evocative here, which is uh, chickenization, because in the United States, the three poultry processing firms have divided up the country like the Pope dividing up the new world or like cable operators dividing up their exclusive territories. And if you're a chicken farmer, you can only sell your birds to one company. And that company tells you which birds you have to grow, tells you how often you have to feed them, what you can feed them, uh, what the conditions are in your barn, how often the lights go on, when they go off, which light bulbs you use, what feed you use, what veterinarians they can see, what medicines they can be given, everything except for how much you're going to get paid when you bring your birds to market. And then they use this top-down view of the chicken market to give you just enough for your birds to roll over your loans and do it again next year and bring them another batch of birds. And that chickenization, I think, is a good example of what happens with monopsony, where you have just this one powerful buyer. The packing companies have done things like um, stricken off chicken farmers who spoke to Congress or spoke to state legislators about the problems of chicken farming. So they say, well, you just can't sell your birds to us anymore. By the way, you're a million dollars in debt for your physical plant and no one's gonna buy your birds because we're the only buyer. So they ruin them. And then when a few of these farmers have struck out on their own to be like coop repair people, they've let it be known that if any farmer hires one of these enemies of theirs, that their birds will also not be welcome in the only processing plant. So that's how excess excessive buyer power lets companies kind of produce a planned economy, but it's neither the kind of nightmarish planned economy of the Soviet Union where like just some planning error creates like millions and millions of forks and no food, nor is it the kind of planned economy that we sometimes hope for where the uh, emergency powers are invoked and we get uh, lots and lots of N95 masks being made when we need them because firms are ordered to shift their production to them. Instead, it's this extremely parochial kind of planned economy where what gets produced is what's most profitable to a small set of shareholders and not what benefits workers or the people who buy their goods. In the, the kind of theoretical and empirical literature on monopsony, there's one other important thing to note, which is that market conditions are much more sensitive to monopsony than they are to monopoly. If a firm can acquire 8 or 10% of an industry's buyer power, they can effectively dictate terms to all the suppliers. There are very few industries in which a supplier can afford to lose 10% of their sales overnight. And so that means that the monopsonist gets to set terms for everybody with very small amounts, relatively small amounts of buyer power. One other thing I'd mention here is that if you talk to apologists for monopoly, they'll say that what happened was that during what we would otherwise, with our French cousins, call the 30 glorious years from 1945 to 1975, when the economy was expanding and expanding in this very pluralistic way, not perfectly, certainly with racial disparities, but more broadly than at any time in industrial history, 
that what was also going on was that monopoly enforcers were just getting too big for their britches and they were intervening to stop mergers that just should have happened because they were good mergers that would have been good for consumers. And the one that they, they always cite is the one from my adopted hometown, Los Angeles, where Vaughn's Markets tried to acquire one of its competitors, which would have given it a 7.5% market share in the region. And um, they say that when the court upheld the block on this merger, that it was a bridge too far, that that was the moment in which everyone realized that we were far too worried about monopoly and that we were punishing success. And we should just allow these businesses to create these efficiencies that will produce low prices for everyone and will certainly never lead to Galen Weston fixing the price of bread. And if you understand monopsony, what happened with Vaughn's market is that the antitrust enforcers understood that there was an incipient monopoly forming, or more importantly, an incipient monopsony. And in fact, in the statute in the United States, there is this thing called the incipiency test, which has not really been applied for 40 years, which is how we end up with monopolies in all of these industries, because we allow firms to grow and grow and grow by rolling up, by buying other firms, by using their access to the capital markets to plan the economy, not for the benefit of the public, but for the benefit of their shareholders. So let's move on to the record companies. Maybe we'll start where you started, with Prince, because, well, I adore Prince. Just don't play any of his music or they'll sue you. Oh, yes, I'm familiar with that. So I didn't realize that there was a tie-in to when he actually changed his name to that unknowable symbol back then. Uh, tell me a little bit about that story and then talk to me about the powers that record companies have, and specifically this one around recoupment. So it's useful here to contrast the record industry with other creative industries. So I write novels, and when I write a novel, my publisher pays me in advance, and nominally that's some money that I live on while I write a book. So I send them a proposal, they give me some money, I write the book, I send them the book, they give me some more money, they finish editing the book, they give me some more money, the book comes out, they give me the final chunk of money, and then the book starts earning money. So it gets a little bit of, uh, every time you sell a copy, 10, 12% of the cover price goes to me. And once enough of those dollars have flown, have, have flowed in that all of that advance is paid back, then I just get a check. I get a check twice a year from my publisher for my royalties. Now, if you're a musician, it doesn't work like that. If you're a musician, you do get an advance that pays for you to live off while you're in the studio. But where my publisher would normally eat the price of the typesetting, the editing, the publicity, the marketing, the plane tickets when I go out on tour, the champagne at the launch party, all of that is actually charged to the musician's account. And so if you do a record deal, you get an advance and you owe that, but then you also have this other part of your debt, which is all the money that you spent producing and selling the record. And oftentimes that's not a discretionary spend. Like oftentimes you have to use the studio and the engineer and the sidemen and the session players that your label insists on at the prices they insist on. And then you owe that money back. And so you get your royalty. Historically, the royalties were very low. They got better when the tech sector started to put some competitive pressure on the labels. They were forced to raise royalties to stop artists from defecting to these new tech platforms. But they were so low that it kind of beggars the imagination. Like the Beatles got one penny per LP, but not the whole penny. They got 85% of a penny because 15% was kept back for marketing expenses. And then they paid their agent 10%. And then they split the remaining fraction of a penny four ways among them, right? That's how low the royalties are. So imagine if you owe hundreds of thousands of dollars or even millions for your production, and then each record is giving you a fraction of a penny, you could sell millions of dollars of records and still owe your record label money. And so that was the, the bind that record, uh, that musicians found themselves in. And it's the bind that Prince was in. And Prince had lots of disputes with his labels. He wanted to produce albums more frequently than they wanted him to. They had a release theory. One of the things that the record labels historically did was not just make music available, but refuse to make music available. When, when Napster kicked off, 80% of recorded music had been withdrawn from sale. And so that you just, you could buy it as a used record, but it, it was not available in the stream of commerce. And they often would decide that artists should not produce even when they wanted to. 
So this was the substance of Prince's dispute. He wanted to make more records. He had made some records. They had made shocking amounts of money for his label. His label said he still owed them even more money. And he started to mess with them. <laughs> and he changed his name to an unpronounceable symbol because they claimed a trademark on his name. And he wrote slave on his face because he said that he could not produce the creative work that he wanted to produce without permission from these other people. And it should be noted here that there's like a racial dynamic as well. While the Beatles got a very bad deal, it was actually pretty good relative to the deal that, say, old blues men got. And the difference is the color of their skin. And that, moreover, generally, the parts of music that we think of as copyrightable are the parts that come out of European tradition, the melody. And the Afro-Caribbean parts, the rhythm sections, are not. And you cannot talk about property rights or copyright, pseudo-copyrights like copyright without, without thinking about the power dynamics that go into it. You know, indigenous land claims are not first-class property claims. Your claim and my claim to our parcel of land in North York is a first-class property claim. And if you don't think about the power dynamics, you can't understand the property relations because they make no sense without it. A Martian listening to Earth music through a, a great a parabolic microphone from, from Mars could not tell you why the rhythm section was not copyrightable and the melody section was. And I'm not arguing for, for copyrightable rhythm sections. I'm just saying that the Beatles got to make R&B and no one called them a thief. But when Public Enemy started sampling white artists, they faced legal repercussions. You trace the powers that the record labels have. I, I think the phrase you use is the industrial aggregation of copyright. Could you tell me what you mean by that and how that turns into market power for these companies? Yeah, so now we're really moving into the Spotify discussion. And this is where you see the tech sector and the entertainment sector really become indistinguishable from each other. That's, that's again, the problem of being asked to choose team tech and, and team content is it supposes that there's a difference. That, you know, when the farmers and the pigs sit down for dinner, that you you look from the pigs to the farmers and back to the back to the pigs, and then you'll be able to tell who is who. And you can't. They're the same. They have the same imperatives. When the uh, Napster era hit, when record labels financialization started to boomerang on them, when their various commercial strategies started to fail, when another CD boom where you got to sell the records all over again didn't materialize, a lot of uh, record labels started to fail. And this was in the early 2000s. And it was about 20 years into the period in which we no longer applied any real scrutiny to mergers. And so these record labels, the big three, were able to buy all of the little guys and roll them up, which is how you get Warner, Universal, and Sony owning 70% of all recordings and 65% of all compositions. And that means that they have the uh, future of the music industry in their hands, especially because these copyrights are extraordinarily long-lived. So in the case of works made for hire in the United States, these would be 90-year copyrights. In the case of, copy of works with a, a human creator, a, a, a natural person as their copyright holder, it would be the life of that person plus 70 years. So these are extremely long copyrights, which means that the portfolios that the labels acquire, they're effectively immortal. And so when Spotify kicks off and says, right, we're going to stream music, it's inconceivable that they would stream music without doing a deal with the big three labels, which means that the three labels had them over a barrel. And the first demand the big three labels had was that they needed shares in Spotify. And they each became significant shareholders of Spotify. Mm -hmm. They became Spotify's business partners, which put them in an unreconcilable conflict of interest. Because as shareholders of Spotify, every dollar that Spotify paid to them as a dividend was a dollar they couldn't pay to them as a royalty. And the difference between dividends and royalties is that the artists in their portfolio are entitled to a share of those royalties. But the dividends are theirs to do with as they will. So the first thing that Spotify and the labels agree on is that Spotify is going to pay a shockingly small amount of money for every stream. You've probably heard this, right? You hear artists saying, I have to sell a million streams before I get a bag of groceries. What's not as well understood is that's because Sony, Universal, and Warner insisted on it because that put Spotify on a better cash basis because it was paying less for its inputs. Now, the big three labels also negotiated minimum monthly payouts. So if you were Sony, maybe you'd get $10 million a month from Spotify, but because the rate was so low per stream that if you add up all the streams of Sony music that have been played on Spotify that month, it only comes to $5 million which means that there's $5 million of unattributable royalty 
coming into Sony's pocket every month. And again, they can do anything they want with that. They can give it to all their artists, none of their artists, some of their artists. They can do the kind of convincer that you get if you go down to the CNE in the morning and you see one guy walking around with a giant teddy bear that he won by uh, throwing softballs into a peach basket. Because the carny that lets him win that teddy bear creates a perfect convincer to get lots more people to come and throw softballs into peach baskets for the rest of the day. So, you know, Joe Rogan can, can get a $100 million payout, which will convince a lot of other podcasters to show up and wall themselves off in the walled garden of Spotify. So uh, Sony and the other big two labels, they get these minimum monthly payouts. They get other goodies too. They get free advertising, free inclusion in playlists. Spotify loves playlists because if you listen to records, then you could quit Spotify and go somewhere else and listen to the same records. But if you listen to playlists, well, those are unique to Spotify. And what's more, Spotify can change the music in the playlist. If you listen to a nice chill music playlist, very gradually, you will find that all the named artists you've heard of who are in that playlist are being replaced by Swedish artists who are work made for hire artists who are not entitled to royalties. So they love playlists and the big three are guaranteed placement in them. Now, the final thing the big three did was they negotiated something called most favored nation status, which meant that Spotify could not pay anyone more than they paid the big three. And what that meant is that if you were one of the independent labels or independent musicians who composed the other 30% of the record sector, you got the small dollar amount that, that Sony and Universal and Warner agreed to, but without those top-ups, without free inclusion and playlists, you have to pay for that. You have to pay payola and without free advertising. And so you're, you're getting the shitty end of the stick. And this is the planned economy, right? The planned economy is that you have to be signed to one of these three labels if you want to get a fair shake. And then these three labels get to dictate terms to you, whatever terms they want to you when you come through the door, because they're the only game in town. Now, if you want to know just how depraved it gets with Spotify, Spotify eventually had an IPO that made billions of dollars for each of the three labels. I think more money than they make selling music. On the eve of that IPO, the standard deal that the big three had, had negotiated with Spotify expired, and they went back to the negotiating table. And you would think that this would be the moment at which they could really put the screws to Spotify. If you were like a neoclassical economist who conceives of the whole economy as like a, a sphere of uniform density on a, on a frictionless plane, then you would assume that the equilibrium that Spotify would attain with the labels is that like all of the excess dollars that it expected to get from its IPO minus one would end up in the pockets of the labels because they could just turn around and say, no, no giant payout, no big three record label copyrights, in your uh in when you when you go ipo instead they took a pay cut because it made their shares more valuable and not only did they take a pay cut but they renewed the most favored nation deal which meant that everybody else in the industry took a pay cut so that spotify could have a bigger ipo and so that the shares that the big three held would blow up bigger on day one when the IPO popped. And it made rational sense to do that, right? Like if your only goal is to maximize shareholder value, if you're one of these record companies, it's a way better deal to make a few billion off of that Spotify IPO than it is to negotiate a better deal for you that actually might benefit the artists. It's not even a question. Well, if you conceive of your firm as like a, an immortal colony organism that just uses human beings as inconvenient gut flora, then that is the right thing to do. But if you have a shred of decency or conscience, then it, it isn't. And, and so I don't want to let them off the hook by saying this is the rational thing to do. It is the rational thing to do if you don't care about anything except making as much money as possible. And otherwise, it was a, it was a wicked thing to do. Fixing the price of bread is the rational thing to do if you think you can get away with it too, right? If the fine for dumping toxic waste in a neighborhood and killing a thousand children is a dollar less than the profits you realize by not treating the waste, then that is the rational thing to do. I don't think it makes it the right thing to do. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're, if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself 
with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. So I want to talk about that equity money as well. After much agitation by artists within these labels, all that money got dispersed in different ways. But, you know, one interesting note was with Universal Music Group, and it was actually kind of, you know, Taylor Swift who helped determine some of this. Do you tell me a little bit about that? I mean, it's an interesting story in and of itself. Yeah, so Taylor Swift was very dissatisfied with her record deal. Very famously, um, she had been signed up with a label that uh, she didn't like and whose owner bore her a lot of animus and it was mutual and her label kind of jerked her around by, you know, selling some copyrights on in ways that she didn't approve of, keeping her under the thumb of this guy that she just detested. So she quit the label and being, you know, the most successful recording artist in America and I think also the most successful touring artist in America she had a lot of leverage about where she went. So Universal Music, which is the largest record label in the world, signed her and she had a lot of negotiating leverage. And one of the things she negotiated for was that Universal would share out some of the money that it got from the Spotify IPO with its artists, but more importantly, that it would share it out on top of the uh, recoupment and not as part of the recoupment. So if you were entitled to $10,000, but you owed owed the record label $100,000, instead of just marking your account down to $90,000, they would just send you a check for $10,000. And this is amazing, right? And, and, and it's terrific, but it's not a structural solution. You know, this is not the kind of solution that you see elsewhere in the sector, like when the Hollywood studios got bought out by private equity firms and flipped the normal deal from 10% to the agent and 90% to the writer to uh, 90% for the agent and 10% to the writer. And all 7,000 Hollywood writers through the Writers Guild went on strike, fired their agents on the same day and ground out a 22-month strike, including the Taylor Swifts of the TV and movie writing world, who are people you've never heard of, but who nevertheless can write their own ticket. Those people had solidarity with their with their comrades on the picket line. And that is a much more reliable process than hoping that Joe Rogan won't turn heel or that um, a Taylor Swift won't step in and be your savior. Rather, this is the thing where you get to pilot your own destiny as part of a, a workplace democracy. You have an interesting quote from Daniel Eck, the Spotify CEO, who acknowledges that the whole kind of Byzantine licensing rules around everything are actually an advantage to a company like Spotify. And I feel like this just emphasizes that theme. And it's this trove of copyright that gives the record companies power. And that's actually limiting even some new streaming platforms from rising up, that the streaming landscape has ossified because you basically have to play with these guys. Well, the... the uh, record industry in general, and, and copyrighted works more broadly, have a metadata problem. It's really hard to know who copyrights belong to. It's hard to know who to sell, them, who, to, who to pay. There's not good central registries of these things. In the U.S. since 1976, it has not been mandatory to, to um, register works for them to be in copyright. And so it's it's like having a city full of land parcels with no title registry. And so you just don't, like people sell you a house and you're like, are you the owner of that house? And they're like, oh, I promise you I'm the owner of the house. And you move it and someone shows up and says, why are you living in my house? You know, there's there's some real problems with this. And if, if you can manage it, right, if you have a system for dealing with it, like Spotify does, you can build that system, it becomes a capital moat. It becomes a thing that you can do that your rivals can't, uh, a Byzantine process that you can master. Where this gets really bad is with the collecting societies. Because historically, when we had a new medium come along, like uh, sound recordings or like radio, uh, or, or even, you know, when we tried to resolve the question of what we would do with uh, people singing uh, music in venues and in halls or playing recorded music in venues and halls, we didn't ask everyone to go and license music from all the record labels. We set up these collective licensing agencies that that did this kind of business on a on a wholesale basis where you paid a monthly or an annual fee 
for certain kinds of uses. You got to use the whole catalog, everything that had ever been recorded. There was some kind of statistical sampling method that was used to pay out artists. And those statistical sampling methods could be good, but they're often not very good. And one of the big problems that we have with these collecting societies is every country in the world has its own collecting society or sometimes more than one. And they each maintain their own databases of who owns which rights, uh, which is this hugely wasteful and inaccurate process, sometimes by design. Because if you get money for an artist you can't find, for example, there's a collecting society that has an obscure artist on their books that they can't find named Beyonce, then you get to keep all the royalties that are owed to them. They're unattributable royalties, and you can use them for development, or you can use them for office upgrades, or you can use them to give everyone a raise. And you know, one of the things we talk about in the book is that we could really improve this at the stroke of a pen through, on the one hand, creating an international rights database, and on the other hand, creating an international prohibition on spending unattributable royalties on anything except for systems that attribute royalties, right? Better, better systems to attribute royalties. Everything else should be off the table. And so, you know, between those, those factors, you know, the complexity and the obscurity, it becomes hard for new firms to step in and compete. And it becomes very easy to steal wages from creators. So let's move on to Live Nation and everything that they do. Could you tell me a little bit about what it was like for you to be reporting on this? Because you mentioned that you give the opportunity for everybody to be anonymous. But it was only in this chapter, only these folks talking about Live Nation that took you up on that offer. Could you tell me a little bit about what that was like and what people told you? So people who talk about Live Nation, you know, people who own clubs, people who tour, people who book tours – they talk about them the way you would talk about an abusive parent who's in the next room and you're whispering to your friends about, about what's going on and hoping they don't hear. And as you say, we gave everyone we interviewed about scams and shady behavior in the industry the chance to be anonymous. It was only the people who were talking about uh, Live Nation Ticketmaster who required it. And it was across the board. They were afraid of retaliation. Ticketmaster used to be just one of many ticketing companies. It bought a lot of its rivals. So did one of its major rivals, a company called Ticketron. About 20 years ago, the American competition authorities waved through a merger between the two of them that gave Ticketmaster a 90% market share. Live Nation owns most of the significant venues in the US and, and many all over the world that you would go to do either a really big kind of stadium tour, but also to do even just a mid-sized tour. Through that, they bootstrapped exclusive rights to promote the concerts of most of the big acts that would appear in those. And then when they merged with Ticketmaster, they pinky swore that they wouldn't use that power to force people to use Ticketmaster for their Live Nation tours, nor Live Nation venues for their Ticketmaster ticketed events and so on. And they flagrantly violated that promise. All of these mergers were waved through on the grounds that it would produce efficiency. That's, after all, the whole basis for the tolerance for monopoly that we are living in right now, is that big companies can do things that little companies can't because they've got such deep pockets and such incredible acumen. And yet, Ticketmaster was given years' notice of Taylor Swift's upcoming concert. They knew how many people were eligible to buy tickets because it was a presale event where you had to have either bought tickets to uh, her, her canceled uh, COVID canceled tour or be in one of her fan clubs to be entitled to even shop for tickets. And yet they couldn't even provision servers that stayed online long enough to sell those tickets. And despite all their promises to the contrary, Ticketmaster enables and encourages the secondary market and tickets. The, the word for reselling tickets is not one I, I like to use. So I, I like to use resale. There's a, a slur against indigenous people that's that's used. You probably know which one I mean. But this reseller market is something that Ticketmaster claimed they were trying to extinguish. And then the CBC sent undercover reporters to a, a Ticketmaster conference for resellers, where they openly discussed the fact that they would help resellers use bots to buy every ticket for a concert within minutes of it going on sale and then repost them at much higher prices in a secondary market that Ticketmaster controlled. And that first sale generated a commission that they shared with the artist, but that was a small dollar sale. And the second sale was one that generated a commission that they didn't have to share with anyone. And they just got to stick it in their pocket. 
And, and this is how you get this, um, this system where one company has all this excess capital it can use to just keep buying up all of its rivals and merging with them. And yet artists see less and less money and it doesn't have to maintain services that even work. The apotheosis of this, there is a BTS ticket that went on sale in the secondary market and someone was circulating screen grabs of it on Twitter. It was a $100,000 ticket. Now it did come with the right to, to dance on stage with the band briefly, but even so that seems like a lot more than I paid for Bowie tickets when I camped out at the X. Maybe tell me about why fees have also been increasing. I think that's a pretty common complaint. People go to concerts, they look at the price, and then it's just like, well, what are all of these fees associated with this? Is that also a result of all this consolidation? Yeah, junk fees are a real indication of market power. And we're all familiar with them. You know, you open your cable bill or your phone bill or you open your, your airline ticket invoice and you'll see that you're being assessed a, a, a fee and then a convenience fee and then a tax fee and then a whatever fee. And Ticketmaster does this too. You can, you can easily see the price of Ticketmaster tickets going up by half or more if you're lucky enough to get one in the primary sale just in the form of these fees. And again, these fees don't have to be split with the artist. So these are, this is just Ticketmaster padding its bottom line. And, you know, under, under uh, competitive conditions, you would imagine that artists would just not want to have Ticketmaster be their ticketing agent because it generates a lot of angry feeling among their fans whom they rely on, not just for this one ticket, but over the long term. And this is another really important aspect of these giant media conglomerates is if you're an artist, you're playing an iterated game, right? You have to make your fans happy now and you have to make them happy next year and you have to make them happy the year after. If you want to be able to sell your box set when you're in your retirement, you have to keep making them happy. If you want to be able to post a GoFundMe when you're going to lose your house when you're 65, you've got to keep them happy then too. Ticketmaster doesn't have to keep your fans happy. Ticketmaster has another artist whose fans they can screw over, who's just like you, and if they do something that puts you into such bad odor that your fans nurse a simmering resentment for you and trickle away, whatever artist they trickle away to is also going to be an artist that has to go through Ticketmaster. doesn't matter to them. I want to just return to the resellers. I was having a conversation at a dinner yesterday about reselling tickets, and people were complaining about it, and somebody was saying, well, look, what is Ticketmaster supposed to do? They limit the number of things you have. You know, every time I go on, it's pretty complicated, and all of these bots are getting in the way. But some say that these anti-reselling measures are actually a way for Ticketmaster to lock in their control over the resale market. Could you tell me a little bit about that argument and about these measures in general? Because I think there is a perception of Ticketmaster amongst the public. Like, yes, we obviously hate Ticketmaster, but, you know, it's these bots and resellers that are fundamentally the problems at the end of the day. Well, let's start by saying that if um, Ticketmaster can't stop bots with 90% of the ticket market and every significant venue and exclusive rights to promote every significant tour, then maybe letting them grow that big didn't produce the rewards that it was supposed to. And the cost that we endure as a result in the form of these junk fees and, and other, other uh, manipulative conduct is not worth the price that we're paying. And then further say that I'm sure that it is hard to pit your wits against every reseller out there in the world who's trying to, trying to buy your tickets with bots and sell them again. But when you're running your own bot marketplace, it is very hard to be credible to say, you know, we are, we are really and truly sincere in our effort to stamp out the bots that make us five times more money than selling tickets in the primary market does, especially when you give the people who run the best bots awards at an annual conference for their excellent bot mastering. So again, I just, I just don't find it plausible. You know, security, information security is hard and it is a game of attack and counterattack. But there are lots of ways that you could imagine doing this that wouldn't open the door to, to this kind of resale market. And, you know, there are big high demand events that don't have a giant resale market. You know, Burning Man sells 80,000 tickets a year. It is a, an event that um, prizes and depends on anonymity. Um, so you don't even have to give your real name to buy a ticket. And um, it's an event with no significant resale market. So there's some at the margin. But there's, there's no significant resale market for, for Burning Man. It's mostly in the primary and secondary sales. And so it's possible, right? And Burning Man, for all that it's very big, is not as big as Ticketmaster. And so I think that arguably Ticketmaster could do better. I also think that 
for so long as there is this problem of bots that you know they're either tacitly or explicitly in collusion with that Ticketmaster can use the existence of these bots as an argument for not standing in the way of its mergers. Because if we only get let it get a little bit bigger, it might finally be able to extinguish these bots. And we, we see this in every sector where there's competition questions. You know, Mark Zuckerberg says, well, yes, we did enable Cambridge Analytica, but if you want us to stop the next one, you're going to have to let us get even bigger because they slip through our defenses. We need to be even bigger and more powerful to stop that. And, you know, the, the, the first argument, of course, against this is like, well, it didn't work the last time, you know, so fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice. As George W. Bush said, we don't get fooled again. But also, you know, if, if Cambridge Analytica manages to hack a site that's one millionth the size of Facebook, it gets one millionth the data. So maybe that's a trade-off we should be willing to make. So what were you thinking as you watched the Taylor Swift Ticketmaster issue percolate? Because that felt like a pretty big cultural moment in a way. You know, antitrust is definitely having a moment more broadly, but this felt like a little bit more of a breakthrough amongst everyday people who aren't thinking about these things all of the time. What were you thinking while all of this was going on? Well, I think that the pattern of action on these big, wicked problems where you have um, cause and effect separated by so much time and space, you know, the Ticketmaster Ticketron merger is 20 years old. So it's a long time to have nursed that grudge. Uh, there aren't many people besides me who are still angry about it. Where you have these cause and effect relationships that are so obscure and so far apart, it's hard to get people head up about it. And what you typically get is a spectacular failure something goes very wrong, like Cambridge Analytica, like Taylor Swift tickets or whatever, and you get this peak of outrage. And then, you know, because it's a big, complicated world with a lot of things in it, people have to pay attention to other stuff. And the outrage drops off, but it doesn't drop off to as low as it was before. It finds a new equilibrium of people who are more pissed off. And then when the next outrage comes along, the new peak is even higher. And then the new resting place descends from that a little, but it's higher than it was before the last outrage. And it goes on and on in this kind of scalloped growth, where at the end, what you get is this tipping point, where, you know, anything that can't go on forever eventually stops, we reach this point where people go enough is enough. And I think that that point comes when we put the pieces together, and we say that the same forces that merged every eyeglass vendor in the world into one company that also owns every retailer for glasses that you've ever shopped at that also makes more than half the world's lenses and is the largest insurer and raised the price of glasses by a thousand percent in a decade. Those same forces put all the beer into two brewing company conglomerates, which is also the reason that your Uber costs five times as much as it did last time. And the guy who's driving it is on welfare because he can't pay his bills, right? That these are all the same phenomenon. And when I see Taylor Swift stands getting really outraged about this. I think we we have got one of the necessary but insufficient preconditions for making a change. We've got a lot of people who are angry. Now we need to make them understand that what they're angry about is the same thing that the striking nurses are angry about. And it's the same thing that professional wrestling fans are angry about when they go on GoFundMe and see that the wrestlers that they loved have all been chickenized by this one Trumpy billionaire who reduced the number of wrestling leagues from 30 to one misclassified as workers as contractors, took away their health control and left them dying of their workplace related injuries, right? These are all the same phenomenon. You know, when three giant shipping cartels get to turn around to their regulators who say, you know, those efficiencies of scale you get for making the ships bigger, I understand why you like them, but aren't you worried that one of these ships is going to get stuck in the Suez Canal? And they get to turn around and say, what do you know about shipping? You don't run a giant shipping cartel. That's the same goddamn issue right? That these are all the same issue. And when you put all those pieces together, when you put them together with railroad strikes, when you put them together with all the problems that we have with, with concentrated corporate power, that's when you have the tipping point. When the Taylor Swift fans march arm in arm with the hardcore beer drinkers, the wrestling fans, the people whose shipping containers are stuck in the Suez Canal, people who wear glasses, that's when we make a difference. 
One thing that's interesting about your book is you and your co-author spent about half of it talking about solutions. So if we're looking at the music industry in particular, you know, outside of mass solidarity in which beer drinkers and the Swifties and everyone else gets together to fight back against corporate power, what are some of the things that you think in the music world could be done to even the playing field? Because even for my friends who are musicians, it just feels almost inevitable to them that they're going to be ground down. It's like, well, what am I supposed to do? Sure. So as you say, the second half of the book is given over to solutions. I know that solution kind of gets a bad rap these days that that people, oh, you you techno nerds and your solutionism. I'm always worried that if I say solution three times fast, Evgeny Morozov will pop out, a, appear in a puff of smoke and smack me in the face. But um, we really didn't want that to make this one of those chapter 11 books where it's 10 chapters of uh, here's everything that's wrong. And then the 11th chapter is just like, go vote harder and that'll fix it. We really wanted to address ourselves to the structural problem and the structural solutions. And the theory of change here is that if anything that can't go on forever will eventually stop, then there will come crises. And when those crises arrive, we will have a chance to do something. And if we have good ideas lying around, they can move from the fringe to the center really fast. This is how we got neoliberalism. Milton Friedman had a, was a crank with dumb ideas about unfettered capitalism that no one wanted to listen to. And he just kept developing them until the Reagan era hit. And then all of a sudden, everybody grabbed him. And that's the nightmare we've been living through for 40 years. If it worked for him, it can work for us. So the last half of the book is given over to these systemic solutions. They're not individual solutions. You can't shop your way out of monopoly capitalism any more than you can recycle your way out of the climate emergency. And to give you some examples of what these are like uh, and how they might apply to the record industry, one of my favorite ones is royalties. So if you're a royalty generating artist, if you make books or games or music or movies, you're entitled to a royalty and you are entitled to audit the books of the company that owes you that royalty. And if you do go and audit the firm, you will often find errors. And this is going to surprise you, but the errors are almost always in the favor of the firm and not the artist. We cite one company here in Los Angeles that has done tens of thousands of these audits over decades. And in only one instance did they find that an artist had accidentally been overpaid. I can only assume that this is due to some pernicious and vexing localized probability storm that haunts the accounting departments of the record industry. And my heart goes out to their accountants. But um, when you go then to the company and you say, you've stolen some money from me, give it back, they will say, you musicians are hilarious, but you can't do math. We don't owe you that money. And we know you can't afford to sue us. And we don't want you to feel bad. So how about if we give you some of the money that you think we owe you that we don't, but you're going to have to sign this non-disclosure agreement. And your accountant is going to have to agree never to audit us again, because we just don't want anyone who knows how we hide the money coming and looking for more. And we don't want you telling other people whose money we've stolen where they can find it. Now, as a weird consequence of monopoly, all these contracts are settled in four states, California, New York, everyone knows, Washington state because of the games companies in Amazon. And then there's Tennessee because of Nashville. And in the United States, contract is a matter of state law. And if we were to amend the state laws of those four states with short bills that said, as a matter of public policy, non-disclosure cannot be enforced where it pertains to material omissions or misstatements in royalty statements, then at the stroke of a pen, we will put more money into the pockets of more artists than 40 years of copyright term extension combined. This is a crack in the machine. You stick a lever in it, you wiggle it around, and money pours out of it into the pockets of artists all over the world. If copyright term extension is the right to feel angry, this is the ability to feed your family. Um, there are other way, other answers we have in this. Uh, the European Digital Single Markets Directive is a mixed bag, but one of the best things in it is a transparency right. It's the right to know how your royalties are calculated. So Spotify artists didn't know that their royalties were not being calculated on a per listener basis. If you've got a band that you loved, right? If you grew up listening to, I don't know, I grew up listening to this band in Toronto called Parts Found in C. So if you if you find Parts Found in C on Spotify, who's now owned by, say, Sony, and you give them your $15 a month and you listen to nothing but that band night and day, that $15 doesn't go to the band. Sony takes all of the streams that were played on Spotify that month and all the money it got for it 
and it divides them up proportionally based on the number of plays per artist. So most of that money just goes to some top 40 star and never goes to the artist you're listening to. And artists didn't even know it. So transparency rights lets you know what, where you have to fight. It lets you know how you're getting ripped off. Being told how much money your work generated, how it was calculated, and how your royalty was calculated is a foundational right. The fact that we have to ask for it is just shows you how messed up these markets are. And then finally, there's termination. So uh, in the 1976 Copyright Act, there was a proposal, it was actually in the, in the act originally, that after 25 years, any copyright uh, assignment would automatically terminate. So if you signed a record deal 25 years later, you got your, your record back, you got your, your rights back. Most copyrights don't generate income for more than about a decade or 14 years. But for the ones that did, this would ensure that artists who signed a contract 25 years ago, which would usually be at the beginning of their career, if you're still making music 25 years later, and would therefore be a bad contract, that you could terminate that contract and resell those rights somewhere else. In 1976, in a smoke-filled room, this was changed to 35 years and made not automatic. During Canada's reconsideration of its copyright, when Trump reopened uh, NAFTA, there was a proposal uh, led by Brian Adams, who I understand has bad ideas about uh, wet markets, but had some very good ideas about copyright here, to uh, allow for termination as as an automatic matter in, in Canadian law. It was not passed. This is, again, a thing that actually changes the distributional outcomes of the entertainment industry that moves money off the balance sheets of entertainment companies and into the bank accounts of working artists. And it is a profound and powerful way to rebalance those those unfair arrangements. And, and you know, the fact that Canada didn't bestir itself to do this is really an indictment of Canada's arts policy. So that is your bonus episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, Arshi, at CanadaLand.com. Commons is produced by me and Jordan Cornish with additional production by Noor Azria. Thanks to Katie Lohr for producing this bonus episode. Our managing editor is Annette Ejiofor. And our music is by Nathan Burley. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join.